Now, somewhat unconventionally, I'm going to start this sermon by referencing an American football podcast. It's dangerous because I've lost some of you already, some with the word podcast, and maybe many more with the words American football. But I was listening to this podcast this week, and the the hosts of the podcast were discussing uh, a coach in American football called Sean McVeigh, a Super Bowl winning coach who is considering quitting just stopping. He's one of the most respected coaches, one of the most successful. And as they were talking about it, and they were really asking the question, why? Why would somebody that successful want to quit? And the podcast host said something like this. He said, it's not uncommon for people to get to the top of the mountain, to achieve all that they've dreamed of, and then find that it's not enough. We're in Matthew 19, second week of our sort of re-series in the the book of Matthew, the New Testament, the life of Jesus. And in our passage today, we have two groups of people coming to Jesus, looking for more. Looking for more than they have. Looking for better, looking for life. The first group are parents. Parents bringing their children to Jesus, seeking for him to share some of his goodness, some of his will, some of his life with their children. The second is a man who is religious, who is conscientious, who is young and relatively wealthy, but who hopes and suspects that Jesus can offer him the key to more, the key to life. So as we start out, I want to say you should listen. If you sat in your seat or listening on at home, watching on YouTube later on, if you're searching for more, if you suspect there's more to life than you're currently experiencing, and you should listen in if you've settled for less, and you should listen on if you think that the satisfied, fulfilling life is possible, but only for other people and not for you. Episode 1 describes the events as these parents bring their children to Jesus. And I've given it the headline, A Welcome for the Week. Now spot the typo if you've got the printed document. I don't know what the slide's going to say. Oh no, it's right on the slide, okay. So it... <laughs> Uh, yeah, the office um, dynamic there going on, um, I told. Anyway, the weak, as in not strong, okay? That's what we're going for, not weak as in the seven-day variety. A welcome for the weak. Now, if you were here last week or you listened in, you'll hopefully remember how we saw that Jesus raises this high bar for his followers. Whether they were single or married, he said that there's a a great way, thing to aim for in the circumstances in your life. This high bar can be called, and the Bible calls it, holiness. That there is a greatness to marriage and what marriage ought to be, and there's a greatness to to singleness and what singleness can be. Acting rightly and fully in the way that God intends us to. 
Not just doing the right thing, but doing it in the right way and continuing to do it in the right way. And we thought about that a little bit in the context of marriage and singleness last week. But what we read next is, in a sense, a classic example of of overreaction and what, what we might call under understanding or a lack of understanding from the disciples. You see, if Jesus is so serious about how life should be lived and setting this such a high bar, then surely somebody with those ideals won't have time for little things or little proved people or even just little people. Somebody who's so big won't have time for the little. That's at least what the disciples thought. And as these parents bring their children to Jesus, we're told that the disciples rebuke them. I think referring to the parents, not to the kids themselves. And it's almost as though they're saying, you should know better. Have you not been listening? Kids don't really have a place here under this king. But that's not the way of Jesus. The high bar that Jesus sets is much more a goal to be aimed for than it is an entrance exam that has to be achieved before you can come. Let's just look down again into our passage. Matthew chapter 19. If you've got a Bible, it'll be helpful for you to have it open in front of you. Let me read verse 14 to us again. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Jesus welcomes the weakest. He does not value people because of what they could offer. Nor does he make an investment based on potential. He welcomes those who have the least. Those who are unproven and those who are utterly dependent on him. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. It's the opposite, isn't it, of how often our world works. It's the opposite of the firms who look for only Oxbridge graduates to hire. It's the opposite of the teacher who only pays attention to those who are the, the academic pupils, those who are going to get the good grades. It's the opposite to so much of how we look for the strong and the valuable and the impressive. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Those who have so little. Those who are so unimpressive. Jesus welcomes the weak. And we see that played out in the way the church is brought together. The church and our church should follow the same pattern. This doesn't mean that all children belong to the kingdom of God automatically. Or that it's only children that belong to the, children of the kingdom of God. But it does highlight to us at the very least the value of children. Note that Jesus actually does what the parents request. Verse 15, when he had placed his hands on them... He went on from there. Jesus stops. 
in the middle of his busyness and in the middle of his important teaching and the healing and the restoring and the, the going to Jerusalem to die for people, he stops and he places his hands on the children and he indicates with his actions as well as his words that they matter. I want to pause here and make one application about our church. Kids work for us here at REC is a priority. We don't just do kids work on a Sunday to free up parents and grandparents and carers to, to be able to better listen. Although that undeniably is a bonus and a good thing. We value our children because Jesus values them. Right now, as we sit here, you listening to me, me speaking, next door in that room, Dave Ludbrook and the team are teaching our preschoolers, the creche, about Mary and Martha and the priority of listening to Jesus. Upstairs, in one room, Claire Lovell is teaching our infant school-aged kids about how the people of God are saved from slavery through the blood of an innocent lamb shed, dying in their place and pointing forward to how Jesus does that for his people. In the other upstairs room, Dave, David Harvey is teaching the junior school age kids about how God dwells with his people. And he's talking to them about the, the tabernacle, the tent that God sets up so that he can be right in the middle with his people. And then pointing them forward to how Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And behind the stage in the little classroom there, Nick Lovell is talking with our teen teenagers about what it looks like to be a Christian as a teenager in our society. I've wanted to do this for ages. I've wanted to be able to tell you all that's going on in our kids' work. And this is the perfect opportunity to say our kids matter. What a great opportunity it is for our young people to come to church and to hear about Jesus. We're going to stop there and we're going to pray for them. And I want to encourage you to continue to pray for the young people in our church and, and those outside because in the topsy-turvy kingdom of God, they matter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, for all the young people you have blessed us with here at this church, Lord, that you've entrusted to our care. And we pray for each of them, Lord, that they would come to know you for themselves through Jesus, that they would know the joy of forgiven sin, that they would know the purpose of the life of discipleship, that you would bring them to yourself and that they would flourish and grow into people who serve you and love you, who share the good news of Jesus with those you have placed them around. Father, we thank you for all that teach and serve in our kids' groups, both on a Sunday and then in the, the midweek. Father, give all those who serve renewed purpose, renewed energy, a renewed desire, but also a confidence that this is doing the work of Jesus. Father, you've blessed us and we pray we would, Lord, use this blessing well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus teaches that the weak matter. 
But then we get our second case study, or episode two, that comes along immediately afterwards. Just look down at verse 16. Just then. Now when Matthew writes just then, he's clearly indicating that what's about to happen is connected with what's just happened. So it's either going to develop the previous idea or be informed by it. It's almost as though he's saying, right, okay, remember how the kingdom of God is for people like children, dependent, unproven, valued little by others. Now here comes a man to Jesus who is looking for more. And what follows, and we've got to keep in the back of our mind what Jesus has said. What follows is a quick-fire set of questions and answers and counter-questions. I think this is a little bit like watching a game of te- a chess, but one with the timers, you know? So have you ever seen that where they make a move and then they hit the thing and it switches over to the other side? And it's, it's high-speed interaction. And this man comes hopeful, but he leaves sad. And so what we need to do is put the replay on a little bit and just slow it down to find out what happens who who is he well this is a man whose credentials are excellent he's aspirational he's moral he's wealthy he's maybe teachable he's looking for outside help and he's got some idea according to jesus of the right place to look for help for fulfillment Here he comes with his first question, verse 16. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus indicates that to get the right answer to that question, how do you define good? Will you go to the one who is good? The good God. What does the good God, who who alone is good say is the way to life well he gives his commandments and you can read the full list in exodus chapter 20 or deuteronomy chapter 5 these commands that outline a life of worship a life of love a life of love shown to other people there is a good way to live and god has laid it down for people to to read and hear and obey Keep his commands, Jesus says, and you'll enter life. You'll walk through that doorway. You'll experience goodness and fullness. But there's another question. Jesus, which commands? God gave lots. Which ones should we keep? And perhaps even here we get a sense of the the cracks in this guy's armour. Are there some commands that he's hoping Jesus doesn't mention? Are there some that he's not sure of? Jesus, which specific commands lead to life? So Jesus lists off five commands, five of the ten commandments. And then a sixth, a summary if you like. You could read them, let's read them again. Jesus replied, verse 18, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother and love your neighbour as yourself. And all of them, in a sense, are practical. 
go and do these things or don't do these things. And all of them are commands about human interaction, neighbour commands, if you like. And all of them are in some way measurable or verifiable. People can tell if he's kept them or not. And it would seem at this point, this young man is feeling pretty good. All of these I have kept. And my initial reaction is to go, wow, fair play. Fair play. That's, that's, that's a pretty good track record. I'm not sure I can. You shall not give false testimony. I, I don't know about you, I've got a, a, a pretty good memory of certain occasions, in, certainly in my childhood, of giving false testimony, lying. He's never lied. Okay. He's never committed adultery. Okay, maybe, maybe more common. He's never murdered. Okay. He's loved his neighbours himself. A little bit harder to, to verify that, but it seems he's, he's given it a good go. But to be honest, that's not the line that really hits home. It's the next one. What do I still lack? What do I still lack? There is, in that word, lack, a whole galaxy of feeling, of emptiness, of the recognition that things are not as they ought to be. We started off talking about that American football coach, Sean McVeigh. We could listen to Jim Carrey, the actor, who once said, said, I wish that everybody would get everything they ever dreamed of, dreamed of so that they would see that it's not enough. There's a, an emptiness that gnaws away at the soul that comes out of this man's word. What, what do I still lack? It's a confession, isn't it? He knows that he lacks something. He knows that this is not it. It's true to say that you can be outwardly rich but inwardly bankrupt. You can be outwardly good but inwardly know that you're not good enough and not just know it but be haunted by it. Your morality can condemn you. That is a terrifying thought. That all the world can see you as good and you take every step and every breath knowing that you're not. That you're not enough. That you're not good enough. You cannot earn your way to heaven, to life. The man could not honestly have answered had Jesus said, keep all of the commands and then listed off all of the Ten Commandments. Because could he have truly have said that he had loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind and strength? And all of the other commands flow from that first one. I think Jesus is pretty remarkable here. His teaching is consistently calling people to put their faith in him and not themselves. 
to put their confidence in his righteousness and not their own. But here he gently exposes this man's heart, his shortcomings, his need, whilst also offering him the answer. Look down again at verse 21. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. If you want to be perfect, if you want life, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, all those phrases are used here and they all mean the same thing. If you want to be saved, as the disciples will put it in a couple of verses' time, Jesus offers a, a practical challenge and then a path forward. And the practical challenge, sell your possessions, truly love your neighbour, give to the poor. And then the path, come follow me. This man, we're told, went away sad because he had great wealth. He had enough, more than enough. And it was just enough to stop him coming to Jesus. Wealth does that. The abundance of possessions. Never has life been found in wealth. Despite what we think. Despite the, the, the constant urging that just a little bit more. Just a little bit more on the paycheck. Just a slightly bigger house. Never has that path led to people being truly fulfilled. And Jesus exposes that in the man. Does he truly follow the commands? Well, only up to a point. One of the commentators says this, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions, gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. This is not a command in the Old Testament that God says that all his people should sell all their possessions. But what Jesus does is, he puts the, the pressure on where it hurts the most. The thing that this man holds most dearly to. In his case, it's money. What is it for you? What is it that you think gives life, which in reality keeps you from life? What is the thing that you think about and dream about? What is the thing that you take comfort in? That you find your safety and security in? What is the thing that if that was taken away, you don't know how you would ever do anything again? What would Jesus challenge us? To give it all up and then to follow him relationships, comfort, control, power, money. Where are we, as the saying goes, blinded by our riches? 
It need not be money, but it could be. What would Jesus call us to give up? To expose that we're not truly following after him, even, even if we're here. Even if everybody around us would look at us and go, well, God clearly loves him or God clearly loves her. And Jesus says to the disciples, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he paints them this memorable picture. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Someone who is first. Someone who has it. Whatever it is. And the disciples were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? If this is the bar, who can get over it? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What a comfort that is. That though seemingly impossible for people, Salvation is possible for God and not just possible in some hypothetical way, but possible and in progress. God is saving people like this rich young man who on the surface just can never come. People whose hearts are set so firmly on the things that they have or the things that they're pursuing. There are so many things that would prevent people from coming to to this life. Wealth and wisdom or works. Failure. Desire. But Jesus offers the same hope to all. Leave behind what hinders you from coming and come and follow me. Turn from yourself your success or your failure, your love of other things and come and follow Jesus. Turn to the one who makes the impossible possible. And what I love is that there is 2,000 years of evidence of, of God doing the impossible. There are people who have come to follow Jesus. Rich people, poor people, so-called righteous people, And the obviously unrighteous, the religious and the irreligious, who have come and found that to follow Jesus is possible because of what he's done. Because he welcomes the weak. Because he saves those who cannot save themselves. All is possible with him. So come. Come now, come today. Pray with hope for those that God has placed you around. No matter how improbable. Sometimes we look around and think people are so broken, they just need to, they just need to hear about Jesus. And we look at other people and think, you've got everything. You'll never come. It's impossible with man. But possible with God. Why don't we pause for just 30 seconds and why don't you take a moment to pray? Just pray in response.
to what Jesus says. Our final theme is a word for the workers. The disciples come back, having heard what Jesus has said, and they look at themselves and they think, what about us? As this man walks away sad, what about us, Jesus? Peter's so often the guy in the, the, the gospel stories who puts our words onto the page. What about me? And swallowed up in that question are thoughts of worth and value, of future planning. It's, for the economists out there, a cost-benefit analysis that, that Peter is engaging in. And he's asking the question, well, is it worth it? Is it worth it for us? Because we've seen that he failed to give it up, but, but we have. Jesus, is it worth it? And Jesus wants to answer that question, yes. Yes, it's worth it. Yes, it's worth it, even if you're in the shoes of that rich young man selling all that you have and coming and following Jesus. It's worth it. This glorious conclusion that Jesus is going to describe that is like riff through with, with grace. And Jesus says, Truly I tell you, verse 28, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who will follow me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. Jesus takes up the theme of Daniel chapter 7. It's part of the Old Testament that describes a vision that God gives to a man, a man of God called Daniel, funnily enough. And it's a vision of the future, about how this story, this great story that we're all living in, a story of death and destruction and decay, the story of sin and sorrow and salvation, how it, this all eventually pans out. What's going to happen? I'm going to read to you from Daniel chapter 7. This is what Daniel sees. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is how the story ends. The glorious God-man enters heaven and is given the wages and rewards of his work. An eternal reign over all things and all people for all time. His enemies will be finally defeated, his kingdom fully established, and the fruit and character and blessings of that kingdom enjoyed by all. It's, as, we, as we listen in 
as Jesus references this. It's the idea that something is coming that's already experienced in part, but will one day be fully realised. It's an example like this. In the UK, we have the, you know, the, the four different countries that make up the, uh, the United Kingdom. And there are things that are true in one part that are not true in the other. So we, my, my wife's Welsh, we've got family in Wales. They, in Wales, enjoy free prescriptions. Imagine how good that would be. I know, especially if you get sick, you know, you've got an onlooker. Free prescriptions. Wow. But imagine one day when all the UK will experience that. Imagine how good that, some of you are like, I'm moving to Wales. But that's kind of it. As Jesus is looking forward to here, and the disciples ask the question, what about us? He says, remember how the story ends. Jesus is the son of man who will rule and reign. But unbelievably, when Jesus comes to his throne and this great rule and reign, what Daniel 7 points us towards is that others share in that wonderful reign. Let me quote to you, read to you a couple more verses from Daniel 7, further on in this vision. We're told in verse 22, The ancients of days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And then further down in 26, The court will sit and his power will be taken away, that's the enemy, and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. As we see this vision of Jesus coming into the heavens and establishing his rule and reign, incredibly, those who are in Jesus, those who are his people will will reign with him, will be, in a sense, in charge and enjoying power, glorious, grace-filled power. What is his will be shared with his people. Jesus speaks to his disciples as they ask the question, will it be worth it? And he says, yes, here's how the story ends. With great recognition and reward for the disciples in the great victory that is to come. They will reign. They too will sit on thrones. In his glory, he will extend his grace. And there are two things for us to note as Jesus speaks to the disciples here. Two characteristics or, or paradigms of the kingdom. And the first is this. Glory follows suffering. In that order. This is the pattern that Jesus himself models to us. Hard work followed by wonderful reward. It is the cross and then the crown. We're told in the book of Hebrews, for the joy set before him, looking ahead, Jesus endures the cross. The Son of Man must be lifted up. He must be forsaken and betrayed and abandoned and tortured and finally crucified. 
And then the Son of Man will be raised on the third day. And then the Son of Man will ascend to the heavens and be accorded all glory and power and dominion forever. This is the path that Jesus himself walked. Hardship and hard work and suffering and then glory. This is the pattern for the Christian life. To seek glory without suffering. To try and shortcut the process is to walk away from the path of Jesus. It is to despise him and to despise his ways. It's to suggest that he got it wrong or that in some way you are better or deserve more than he did. It leads to pride. It leads to prayerlessness. It leads away from the weak and the wounded. It leads us to say, no, you're not important, you little people, you unproven people, you foolish people. It leads to earthly kingdoms that pass away. It does not lead to the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom of Jesus. Glory follows suffering. But the second is this. Did you notice that there is both a a future-looking dimension to what Jesus says to his disciples, but also a present reality? We'll call this paradigm the, the now and the not yet. Whilst glory, whilst reward is to come, that's not to say that they won't experience the goodness of the king even now. The second part of those, those verses that talk about for those that have given up. Let me just read it again to us. And everyone who has left, just, just think of the practicality. Put names, put specifics, specifics into, into these, these, these categories that Jesus mentions. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now and not yet. Think of it like this. Imagine an elderly relative dies and in their will they leave you a large sum of money. But you're not going to receive it for many months until the estate is sorted out, until you know, the, the buildings are sold, the house is sold, the, the land is assessed. So you know it's coming. But you haven't received it yet. But in the meantime, it begins to make a difference. The money that you were saving for a new car or for an extension on the house, well, you know there's a bigger sum coming. You know you're likely to move house when that comes. So you can use that money for other things. You can use it on things for, for right now. Even though the big thing has not yet arrived, it begins to impact now. In, same, in the same way, the benefits of giving up things for Jesus come along now as well as in the future. What does this look like? Well, I think primarily it looks like the church. It looks like the blessing of belonging to the family of Jesus. It's a family for those whom following Jesus cost them their family. Some of us in this room know the reality of living in a country where to follow Jesus means that you're likely to be cut off by your community and your family. 
It's a home for those who leave their homes. Think of missionaries. People going to the ends of the earth for the sake of Jesus. Away from all they've known and all their comfort. And finding in a far off land that they are still at home. It looks like belonging to a a church where when you can't take your kids to the youth group on a Friday, somebody else in church says, yeah, I'll take them, even if their kids are not going. It looks like the joy of seeing others grow and flourish as you serve them. It's it's the joy of seeing other people give of themselves for the benefit of other people and just getting to watch that and experience that. It's the utter self-forgetfulness of focusing on other people, serving their needs, seeing them enjoy the blessings of the king through your efforts and not for a second thinking about you at all. This is not a mathematical equation that the person who gives up a house is sat there waiting for a hundred houses to come in the post. Although with a royal mail at the moment, it might take a while. This is hyperbolic language from Jesus that says that in the end, even before the end, those who follow Christ and hear and heed the call of Christ will regret none of what they've given up for him. For they will have known his pleasure in serving him. They will have seen his work through and in them. They will have experienced the fruit of the Spirit of God in their hearts and lives and in the lives of those around them. The workers, those who have followed Christ, will never regret it. And that is a massive claim. But I think it's true. I think ultimately all those that are in Jesus will regret none of what they've given up for him. He will reward. And it doesn't come in a bank account. It doesn't come in prestige. It comes in small and spirit-filled ways. We will experience more of God as we serve him. Next week, Jai is going to be speaking to us about the parable of the workers. As this phrase that this passage finishes with, that many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first, is, is worked out in a different way. But I want to encourage us as we finish up to keep working, to keep going, for it is worth it. For those who are first, who seem to have everything, will be last if they don't heed the call of Jesus. And those who the world would consider to be last, those who seem to have nothing, those who are like children, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. They will be first because of Jesus. Jesus who said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And he says it still. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're seeking or whether even coming in this afternoon you'd given up on more. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and life to the full. Let me pray. Father, 
we said at the start that this is a message that should be listened to for a people like us. And we pray. We pray that we would heed the words of Jesus, that we would be encouraged and renewed, that we would be hopeful. Father, that we would be even even in the next few minutes, as we sing together, we would recognise that what Jesus said is true. Father, that to count the cost to follow Jesus is worth it. Father, help us to sing now with joy, maybe for the first time. We pray these things in his name. Amen.